It was a shiny, chrome-edged V8 engine car sitting in the center of the showroom, not out on the lot. The dealer knew that such a car would catch someone's eye who would simply have to have it. That someone was my dad. The year was 1963, a long time ago, and after a lot of conversation between him and my mom, he made the decision to buy it. The next step was to go to the bank and sign the paperwork that would make it possible. I bet you're thinking that he was going there to get a loan. You'd be mistaken. He went there to sign a huge number of $25 savings bonds that he had squirreled away as deductions from his paychecks for a long time. He had enough bonds stacked on the bank counter to make the purchase. I remember watching him sign and sign and sign. My dad would never have thought about taking out a loan to buy a car or to buy anything else on credit for that matter. We were a debt-averse family. Part of that attitude was likely a result of the specific history of my dad's family. When my dad was about 12, his dad found himself beholden to the local sheriff who knew about a certain moonshine still. And my dad's family had to pull up stakes and move across the state line as a result. But in more general terms, it also came from that certain Appalachian sense of fierce independence. In, the, in that mountain culture, you were never beholden to anyone. You always needed to be able to make it on your own and never look vulnerable. This independence, this sense of not being beholden to anyone, this invulnerability, this aversion to indebtedness, as it were, goes well beyond the Benfield family's purchasing habits. There's a rugged individualism in this nation's very identity. It raises its head, for example, in all those discussions about governments requiring balanced budgets and our insistence that all people pay their own way. I will leave to you the particular political discussions about what is best for us fiscally. There are traps into which a preacher ought not fall. <laughs> but I do know that how we think about these sorts of issues, Monday through Saturday, often ends up being transferred into how we think about and talk about religion. Our worldview becomes our religious view more often than we want to admit. Thus, there's a rugged individualism that has exhibited itself in religious life, as in God helps those who help themselves. Prosperity is a sign of God's favor, apparently. It has exhibited itself most glaringly in the likes of people such as Joel Osteen and so many other preachers of that so-called prosperity gospel. That quest for prosperity becomes the sin of greed. You know... We may like to name the naughty sins of nakedness and sex in the Garden of Eden as original sin. But I think that that sort of talk is merely a way to divert our attention from something more fundamental. I'm convinced that the true original sin of Adam and Eve was greed. Their desire to possess that which they did not have. And in possessing, they would not be dependent on God. No indebtedness, please. And we see where this original sin of greed, both personal and public, has taken us through the ages into wars and economic inequality and abuse and slavery. 
Greed takes many forms, many of which are not measured in dollars and cents. This human condition is something that Jesus addresses in this evening's gospel. It is a warning that the desire to possess distracts us from becoming authentic, wholesome people. Jesus, in his language of storehouse and barn, of treasure, of striving after all these things, as he puts it, is a warning to us about greed and, a refu- and our refusal to rely on the kindness of others and thus to end up not being truly in relationship with them. Now, I'm going to be a bit disrespectful and say that Jesus could have done a better job getting his message across in this pericope. Sure, he talks about treasure in heaven, but that phrase is a bit platitudinous for me. Sort of like a bumper sticker on a car that indeed states, God helps those who help themselves. Or like a deep thought for the day that our spiritual but not religious friends employ. Or even like one of those cutesy sayings on a fluorescent backlit sign in front of a country church. Trust me, I see a lot of those signs every week in my travels. If we want something concrete to stand on rather than generic talk about treasure in heaven, then believe it or not, we need to turn to St. Paul. In this evening's lesson from the letter to the Romans, Paul turns the whole idea of debt and of independence upside down. He's not talking about the banking system of his day, so please don't quote him when arguing about monetary policy. There is no biblical analogy here between fiscal prudence and the Christian life. But what he does is to give tangible hands and feet to the concept of the treasure in heaven that Jesus mentions. Paul is writing to a church in Rome that he has not yet visited but he already understands the conflict taking place in it. It is comprised partly of Jews who apparently consider themselves superior to non-Jewish Christians or Gentiles, but it's also made up of those non-Jewish Christians, those Gentiles who also apparently consider themselves superior to the Jews who at one time had been run out of Rome by the authorities and have now returned. Each group looks at itself as superior to the other and thinks that it possesses something that the other does not, that it can get along without relying on those people. Paul disturbs his readers, I am sure, when he writes that he is indebted both to Greeks and to barbarians, to use his monikers for the warring parties. He is indebted both to the wise and to the uneducated, as it were, indebted to the wide variety of people in the body of Christ who are not like him. He owes something to everyone. One translation of this passage states that Paul has a responsibility to them all. His treasure lies not in a future heaven as in actual flesh and blood, That's beyond his own body. He's in debt to the larger body of Christ. We will be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, he tells them. Paul is also speaking to us. Christians are in debt to the larger body of Christ. We are indebted to so many varying people because they show us how cosmically large the body is. Others have something to give to each of us. 
We'll spend some time tomorrow focusing on how to love kindness and how that plays out in evangelism. Let's stop saying that in evangelism we are giving something to people that they don't have so that they will owe us, be it in time or talent or money. It's tempting to do such a thing when trying to find new church members. Rather, they are giving something to us, a vision of how large and diverse the body of Christ is, and thus we become indebted to them. We are mutually encouraged. Yes, people in Arkansas who live below the poverty line are giving us something that we generally well-off Episcopalians don't have, a new vision of the body of Christ, even if those folks don't set foot in our churches. Yes, people who disagree with us politically are giving us something we do not have, a new vision of the body of Christ, as they might sit in the pew beside us. Yes, people in the Ozarks who struggle with opioid addiction, they have something to give us. They have the sense that what they have done has been perhaps a bad choice. And even if we don't understand it, they are part of the body. Our independence, our rugged individualism must go. Christianity begets mutuality. Our good news is that the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is within reach. We don't have to wait to die to cash in on it. Paul reminds us not to be afraid of the witness of people who differ from us. To do so would be to remain poor. The treasures of heaven are the very people around us, often unseen and avoided, and we are indebted to anyone who consciously or unknowingly shows us what the risen Christ really looks like. He comes in appearances much more varied than that gardener in Gethsemane or a fisherman frying his fish on the roadside or the mysterious guest who shows up in a locked room. We are not going to understand the power of resurrection until our eyes are thusly opened. To use the image of how Paul first found his life changed, we're not going to understand the place of resurrection in our congregations and in our communities until scales fall from our eyes and we see what our communities are actually like. Now, seeing the resurrected Christ everywhere has consequences. It makes it desirable to love kindness because that's how people who feel in debt to one another live their lives. It makes it desirable to do justice, because that's the debt that we owe to every last person made in God's image. It makes it desirable to walk humbly, because that is what we do when we're in the presence of someone and a creation greater than ourselves. Don't be afraid to live like that. Because it's God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom here and now if we but keep our eyes and ears and hearts open to the debt that we owe and to the riches that abound. Amen.